Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetic series, posted June 27, 2023, titled, This Resurrection Argument Doesn't Add Up, Trent Horn Response. Some Christians treat these facts, that all the apostles were martyrs, as being historically certain or obvious, when they aren't. Excellent point. One might even say that they are dubious. I don't think it's the strongest version of that argument. Agree. And so I'm going to examine a variety of objections to it, and in the process modify the argument to make it more persuasive to make a case for the resurrection. I'm all for tackling the best argument. Let's do it. Welcome to Apologia where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. Catholic apologist Trent Horn recently released a video about the argument for resurrection from martyrdom, addressing me in particular. So, for example, Pologia, who was an atheistic YouTuber. Pologia, 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 this for the Bible tells me so objection. Uh, it's not very helpful. The video was well articulated and well made. But, because it was meant to cover a broad spectrum of martyr topics, it's a bit of a three-ring circus, and my usual top-to-bottom response would probably add to the disjointedness. So, let's just get right to what Trent thinks is his best argument, and the heart of where he and I disagree. My point is just that the martyrdom of Paul and the eleven apostles and James' brother of Jesus is not as easy to prove as many people assume. Exactly. I've done quite a few videos on this topic, and I'm glad that Christians are discouraging other Christians from following such a clearly fallacious path. Well, we also don't have to prove it, because there's a variety of evidence we can present to show the apostles sincerely believed Jesus rose from the dead based simply on the suffering they willingly endured. The evidence would support the following assertions. One, the apostles suffered for their belief in the resurrection. Two, the apostles risked martyrdom for their belief in the resurrection. Three, the apostles were martyred for their belief in the resurrection. Each of these three assertions becomes stronger evidence for the apostles' sincerity, because the risk involved with each of them begins to strongly outweigh any kind of reward. Okay, well it seems Trent is arguing some kind of martyrdom pyramid or funnel, where he feels he can demonstrate a lot of suffering, some risk, and just a few actual martyrs, as the intensity increases. But, my primary objection is not the text in red, but rather in the first two words of each point. Who exactly are the apostles? It's a fluid word, and refers to different people in different contexts. Early in the church, apostle came to mean anyone sent out, no matter who they were. So those references are easily conflated to the original 12 to artificially bolster apologetic use. And it's also unclear that the apostles always meant all 11, doing something in unison. It can be shorthand for as few as two or three. Fortunately, it seems Trent is offering a specific scope. All I'm showing is that the 11 apostles, Paul and James, the brother of the Lord, sincerely believed Jesus rose from the dead. By invoking the 11, I'm going to assume he means the 12 disciples minus Judas. So specifically, we have Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Adding in latecomers, James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul. 
I have quibbles about Paul being on this list, but we can get to that later. For now, we're going to call these the 13 Witnesses and use that title instead, whenever Trent says Apostles, so that we're being precise. So let's start with the first claim. Is there evidence the Apostles risked suffering and death for publicly preaching Jesus' resurrection? That's not the first claim. You just had this on the screen a few seconds ago. Risked suffering and death is watering down the first and combining it with the second. I mean, do what you want, but the obsessive-compulsive part of my brain is unhappy with the asymmetry. Let's do this. There, fixed it. Is there evidence the apostles risked suffering and death for publicly preaching Jesus' resurrection? Absolutely. 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 First, Jesus' public preaching about himself, as I said, led to his own suffering and death. So it was rational for the apostles to assume the same thing would happen to them if they preached Jesus' message. Excellent. So now Trent will demonstrate that Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, and James' brother Jesus, and Paul, were all out preaching Jesus' message. In fact, let's just clean up Trent's chart here, too. Okay, evidence that the 13 eyewitnesses were out preaching. Can't wait. Let's hear it. Second, we have the first-hand accounts of St. Paul, who describes his own suffering. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're just moving on to the next point. No attempt whatsoever to defend the 13 witnesses were preaching claim. Trent just says so, and that's good enough. Paloge also claims that there's no first-hand account from any of the apostles saying they suffered for preaching the resurrection. All we have are second-hand accounts, like the book of Acts. Before we get to the objection to my objection, first look at the claim that Trent didn't even bother to make, that Acts tells us that the 13 eyewitnesses were preaching. Does it? We start in chapter 1, shortly after Jesus ascended into heaven. And here we go, the list I've been rattling off. This is where it comes from. Are they preaching? No, they've been hiding in an upstairs room praying. Okay. Chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. Peter stands up to tell everyone they're not drunk. The eleven are there, but Peter is the only one that talks. Chapter 3. Peter and John alone go on their own side quest. Only Peter preaches. But in chapter 4, Peter and John are both speaking to people. Chapter 5 has Peter and the Apostles, not sure how many, brought before the Sanhedrin and threatened with death for preaching. If I'm generous and say this is early enough for apostles to still be synonymous with the Twelve, then this is conclusive in the story. They're flogged, told to stop, and then sent on their way. After this, the use of the word apostle is fuzzy. Barnabas and Paul are explicitly included in the apostles in chapter 14, so it's definitely not a term limited in scope to just the original Twelve by then, but probably before as well. Even so, if we go reference by reference, verse by verse, whatever group the apostles were, they're not preaching. Call me pedantic if you want, but even if I take it at face value, we had the original eleven preaching up until the first time they were told to stop. That's all Acts is evidence for. After that, it's just the Peter and John show. In the Acts of the Apostles that describe Peter and John being brought before the Sanhedrin. And then the Paul and Barnabas show. This is why I say that the Twelve disappear from reliable history, and scholars agree with me. But, of course, I don't take acts at face value. Pelogia dismisses evidence like this, as well as the martyrdom of James, if he says it is only found in one source, like the Book of Acts. Only source we have for the martyrdom of James, son of Zebedee, is a single, non-corroborated New Testament document. And around here... We call that, or the Bible tells me so. This, for the Bible tells me so, objection, uh, it's not very helpful. Paloja is assuming that in order to believe an historical account, it must be corroborated by something else. Of course. You'll never hear me say that you must have corroboration to believe an account. 
but we should always apportion our confidence for a belief to the evidence provided. A corroborated claim is necessarily going to be more evidentiarily sound than a non-corroborated one. Trent derides me for this very basic epistemological observation, but later, when Christian scholar Sean McDowell employs the exact same standard for the exact same book, Trent is fine with it. In recent interviews, McDowell has downgraded James' son as Ebony from the highest possible evidence to the second highest possible evidence because James's death is only recorded in the Book of Acts among the early sources. So Trent understands in principle. But most ancient history is uncorroborated. That's one reason why most ancient history is held very loosely by historians, and we don't base our very important life or policy decisions upon certainty about it. Suetonius's claim that Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome is only corroborated by Acts 18. It's not found in other ancient historians like Josephus or Tacitus. Okay, but you understand that is corroborated, right? Suetonius is a second source, so that particular Acts 18 claim is not single source. So my single source objection wouldn't apply to this example. You see that, right? Pontius Pilate's scuffle with the Jews over golden shields in Jerusalem, it's only recorded in the Alexandrian writer Philo. This is true, though in my view, this story is a direct dovetail to the standards in Jerusalem story about Pilate told by a separate historian, Josephus, highly consistent in theme, behavior, motivation, and unfolding narrative. But the reliability of both stories are absolutely debated because they're single source, though some argue against them just because they undermine the gospel portrayal of Pilate. And Josephus is often the only source for important events in history at that time, like the Siege of Masada. That's a terrible example, because the historicity of the Siege of Masada is hotly contested, precisely because the archaeological evidence at the site does not seem to support the story. Go see these books or papers, or others like them, for more. But really bad example. You don't see Paulo just saying these are cases of Philo tells me so or Josephus tells me so. I would if I'd been indoctrinated from infancy to blindly accept anything Philo or Josephus said. And there was a popular song in place about it. But now, I absolutely do caveat single-source claims, like the story about Nero scapegoating Christians for the Jerusalem fire found only in Tacitus. If all of history is to be believed in the way they do, that Nero around that time was persecuting and killing Christians as a scapegoat, because to, in order to cover for fire, whether or not you think that's true, a lot of people will accept that Nero was using Christians as a scapegoat. It helps my case, but I still hold it only tentatively and try to present it as tentatively. Everyone at that time was religious, be they Christian, pagan, or Jewish, and they believed in miracles. Yet skeptical historians can at least believe the mundane events in those writers. As you can see, even mundane claims are held tentatively. But you are wrong about this. The credibility of mundane claims is greatly reduced by being adjacent to an outlandish claim. If you tell me you ordered a pizza, I'll take your word for it. If you tell me you ordered a pizza to feed the pet dragon in your garage, I'm probably now so skeptical, I'm not even sure about the pizza or the garage. That's just the way life works. This is compounded all the more when the writing in question has a strong, clear religious motivation. The Book of Acts is desperate for me to believe the supernatural parts, to the extent that invention or exaggeration of other details seems plausible and likely in service to that desire. And the suffering and persecution described in the Book of Acts would fall into that mundane category that any scholar should accept. And frankly, scholars do accept that. Christian New Testament scholars, whose jobs depend on signing statements of faith, accept them, sure, 
But I mean, Trent spent a section of the video talking about one of the high-profile scholars who does not accept the mundane parts of Acts. One scholar who has criticized claims of early Christian martyrdom is Candia Moss in her book, The Myth of Persecution, How Early Christians Invented a Story of Martyrdom. See? Also remember that we're comparing ordinary claims. If we can trust a single source to tell us about a battle that happened in the ancient world, or a protest that broke out, or people being expelled from their homes, why can't we trust a single source like the Book of Acts that attests to the ordinary claim that some people were persecuted for their beliefs? Are you really trying to tell me that you're advocating that all historical sources have the same credibility factor that a financial document or a travel log is the same as a propaganda leaflet or a religious text? If so, I'm looking forward to hearing Trent blindly affirming all of the mundane claims found in the Quran, and in the Book of Mormon, and in the National Enquirer. Although Jim might say Acts is not historically reliable, whereas Josephus is, and that's a separate discussion. That's not a separate discussion. That's literally this discussion. Is the Book of Acts reliable enough to be authoritative on uncorroborated matters? Sean McDowell decreases his confidence, and I also decrease mine. It's also a discussion when reading Josephus, historians realize that at times he exaggerates to support his agenda of normalizing Hellenistic Jews within the empire. And there are other times when his bias towards his Roman employers can give pause. This is what historians do. They don't just read things and uncritically believe them at face value. But to simply assume the testimony of Acts is not enough to prove an ordinary fact, but Josephus' testimony is, demonstrates a bias against the New Testament evidence instead of an honest assessment of it. It's not my assumption. It is my honest assessment after considered evaluation, where I had to overcome my bias of decades of completely blindly buying anything Acts had to say. It wasn't a worldview issue. I was a Christian. But let's put a little bow on our evidence checklist for Trent's claims. For the sake of argument, we're going to put a check mark beside Peter, John, James the brother of Jesus, and Paul. All the 13 witnesses that Acts names as preaching after the first scolding. What do you have for the other nine? Paloja also says there's no evidence in the New Testament that the apostles besides Paul, Peter, James, and John even preached the resurrection. But it seems unlikely they would have been known as apostles, a title which means messenger or that they would have figured prominently in the Christian community if they just sat around and didn't do anything. What? What makes that unlikely? Serious scholars doubt that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They doubt the census, Herod killing infants, the release of Barabbas, the existence of Joseph of Arimathea, the God claims of Jesus. The list goes on and on. You really think it's implausible for people to have become known by nicknames they didn't earn? We have far more resources to investigate this stuff than they would have had in the first century, and you're still needing to admonish uncritical acceptance within your Christian community. If you're just an average Christian who has heard the story of Peter being crucified upside down or Paul being executed by being beheaded, you might assume these stories are in the Bible, even though they're not. I'm afraid I'm going to need a little more evidence than Trent's personal incredulity about ancient nicknames. The Gospels describe the disciples preaching during Jesus' earthly ministry. This was before Jesus died, so it would be irrelevant to professing Jesus' resurrection. And it describes Jesus giving all of them the Great Commission to preach the Gospel to all nations. I'm not convinced Jesus actually said that. But even so, the utterance of a request is absolutely not evidence that anyone actually followed through on the request. A recording of a mom asking her kid to clean his room is not a demonstration that the room is actually clean. 
So once again, there's no reason to doubt that all the apostles were involved in church planting and public witnessing. Are you kidding me? I'm being overly generous in granting even four from Acts. And for the rest, Trent has offered only his own credulity of what? Of tradition, I suppose. This is a huge red flag. Even though these activities brought with them the threat of persecution and death, thus evidence of the sincerity of their beliefs. Show me. Don't tell me even on the most modest, most watered-down martyr claim that he can make that at least these 13 witnesses were out preaching, there is completely insufficient evidence. That James was willing to endure suffering and even death is evident in his decision to lead the Jerusalem church after the death of James, the son of Zebedee. You know what? That's fair. There's independent corroboration of James being the head of the church. We have no evidence of what James, the brother of Jesus, believed, what he claims to have witnessed, or what he was actively preaching, but I'll give him to you on the willing-to-die scale for accepting a leadership position. But can we show the apostles were martyred, or that they accepted the ultimate risk of death instead of rejecting their faith? Okay, I guess Trent is resting his case on the willingness argument, and we're moving on to the final stage. While the church affirms the martyrdom of the eleven disciples except for John. By church, Trent means the Catholic church here. Unlike my Protestant faith, which was built upon sola scriptura, or by scripture alone, trans faith includes church tradition as authoritative. I'm not even sure why a Catholic would be making a video like this. If the church says the eleven were martyred, then the eleven were martyred, right? Evidence bows to authority. If I keep interacting with Catholics, I may need to come up with a, or the Pope tells me so, jingle. More skeptical scholars are likely to reject many of these accounts as being legendary because the earliest sources for them are a century or several centuries later. That leaves Peter, Paul, James the brother of Jesus, and James the son of Zebedee. Okay, so let's bring up our checklist. Peter, Paul, James the brother of Jesus, and James the son of Zebedee. So the only difference between this and the preaching checklist is James the son of Zebedee. Now, didn't we already hear something about him? In recent interviews, McDowell has downgraded James the son of Zebedee from the highest possible evidence to the second highest possible evidence because James's death is only recorded in the book of Acts among the early sources. Ah, yes. James the son of Zebedee is on shakier ground. We've already gone over the insufficiency of Acts. If I'm going to blindly accept Acts, then I'm just swallowing the resurrection with it, and this whole conversation is unnecessary. Comparing these lists, they're so close to identical, it's almost like the artifice of nuance being put forth in the willing-to-suffer position made no evidential change whatsoever. Maybe it gets watered down, because for a death to be a guarantee of sincerity, my criteria are pretty clear. First, the person claimed to have witnessed resurrected Jesus. Second, the person had a chance to save their lives by recanting. And third, rather than recant, they chose to die. Trent does seem to understand the evidential importance of the martyr candidate being in a position to actually know, as he gives the standard response to the sincerity of 9-11 hijackers. Present-day believers are not in a good pos position to know from their own testimony if the miracle happened. But the original witnesses of the miracle, who were in a position to know if it really happened, do provide compelling evidence worth taking seriously if they were sincere in their testimony. And yet, Trent and waves away my observation that while Paul claims to have seen a vision of Jesus, what he saw necessarily had to be different than the pre-ascension Jesus that the other twelve on the list experienced. Unless, of course, you're willing to say Jesus came back to earth and we're actually waiting for his third coming. Paulosia says Paul doesn't count as a witness of the risen Jesus because Paul may have only seen a hallucinatory vision, so his willingness to die doesn't prove anything. 
But what Paul saw is a separate question. All I'm showing is that the 11 apostles, Paul and James, the brother of the Lord, sincerely believed Jesus rose from the dead because they risked being persecuted about it. We can debate what they meant about resurrection later, but they were sincere in their resurrection belief. But practically, Paul's sincerity is no more relevant than the 9-11 hijacker's sincerity. He just wasn't in a position to know. I won't beat that point any further, but it's not insignificant here. As for the recanting consideration, a true martyr must be able to say no and have a chance to escape execution by denying their faith. Otherwise, he's just a victim of circumstance, like someone who dies in a church bombing, for example. Trent doesn't deny that there is no evidence that anyone on his list was ever given a chance to recant. But what he does do, surprisingly, is appeal to a different point in history as a way out. At the end of the first century, Pliny the Younger, a governor of Bithynia, asked Emperor Trajan what he should do with Christians who suspiciously gathered in groups early in the morning, which is something rebels often did. In response, Emperor Trajan sent the following letter to Pliny. Whoever denies that he is a Christian, and really proves it, that is, by worshiping our gods, even though he was under suspicion in the past, shall obtain pardon through repentance. Notice that the date of this letter is 110 AD. Other scholars have it even later which is about 50 years after the deaths of Peter and Paul under Nero. This is like presenting lenient policies toward communists in America in the 2000s and suggesting that is evidence of lenient policies toward communists in 1950s America. You can't just do that. Now, if single-source Tacitus is to be believed, Nero's sole motivation in persecuting Christians was that he was blaming them for a fire that he himself set. Those perceived to be leaders of the movement would definitely not be afforded any chance to say anything at all, lest they expose his duplicity. Although you might say we don't know if Nero offered the same things as Trajan did. It's way worse. We know he had every reason not to. But given that we at least have one example of Christians being allowed to recant, and no similar examples of indiscriminate extermination, or people not being allowed to recant, this tips the scale towards Nero having a similar policy to Trajan. That's just ignoring context entirely beyond the glaringly obvious fact that Nero's persecutions were not ideological. If a recant clause had already been standard Roman policy, then there would have been no reason at all for Pliny to write the emperor and ask what the policy should be. There would have been 50 years of precedent. This is a stretch beyond credulity. But by extending it himself, Trent actually ended up undermining his entire case. Specifically about Nero's reign, Trent reads, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. All of this evidence shows that the original apostles would have, at a minimum, risked suffering and death in order to preach the gospel. So at first, Trent wants us to believe that merely preaching under Nero was to risk suffering and death. But later, Trent wants us to believe that there was a get-out-of-suffering-free card available to anyone caught under Nero. If I'm a thief, and I know that if I get caught, that there's a clause where I can simply give the stuff back to escape punishment, then that significantly reduces the risk that I'm taking in being a thief. If there's a universal recant policy, then I'm significantly less impressed by this willing-to-suffer line of argumentation that apologists like Trent are now making. To round out Trent's list, there's James, the brother of Jesus. What about James, the brother of the Lord? 
As I've noted in other episodes, the word brother in this passage doesn't have to mean child of the same mother. It can refer to step-siblings or cousins. Ah, yes. Grant is Catholic and thereby clings to the perpetual virgin story. So he has to resist any natural half-brother of Jesus. If tradition is good enough for perpetual virginity, I'm not sure why Trent doesn't just lean into Catholic authority on the martyrs and call it a day. I mean, I'm glad he's not. Because the church says so is never going to be convincing to a skeptic or even a Protestant. The earliest account of James's martyrdom, the brother of Jesus, comes from Josephus. Trent skips over my objection to any evidential value in James's death because, once again, James's death is explicitly political and not ideological. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, as Trent didn't address them, you can see my previous videos for the highly problematic issues surrounding James, the brother of Jesus's death. And suffice to say that he fails on all three criteria for an evidentiarily valuable martyr. So to summarize, the who would die for a lie argument is a good one, but it has to be used precisely. The argument is that the apostles who originally testified to Jesus' resurrection were willing to endure persecution and even death in order to proclaim that message. Is it a good one? On the who was preaching slash risking suffering scorecard, we have Peter, John, James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul. On the who was killed scorecard, we have Peter, James' brother, Jesus, and Paul. And on the whose death is a guarantor of sincerity, we have no one. So when Trent says, There's a variety of evidence we can present to show the apostles sincerely believed Jesus rose from the dead based simply on the suffering they willingly endured. He actually means that of the people in a position to know, there's evidence to show that Peter, John, and James sincerely believed that Jesus rose from the dead. That's it. Those three. That should look familiar to regular watchers of my channel. So, for example, Paulogia, who is an atheistic YouTuber who often criticizes arguments for the resurrection, has a video on the argument where he raises the point that the disciples could have been sincerely mistaken about the resurrection. That's the one, my How Christianity Probably Began, No Resurrection Required video for a New Testament scholar approved, completely naturalistic explanation for all the evidence actually in question, and not merely the wishful thinking traditions being kept alive by preachers and apologists. I'm not going to address that claim in this episode. Aww. I'm also happy to chat with Paloja if he has disagreements about my assessment, uh, or maybe have a general chat about the resurrection or a debate. I would absolutely love and welcome that. Consider this an invitation to come on to my Apologia Live channel for a friendly conversation on the resurrection, or let me know when and where you'd prefer. You seem like a very honest interlocutor, which I appreciate, and so that sounds fun. I hope it happens. For more videos on Christian martyrdom, tap on the thumbnail on screen now for the full playlist, and I'll see you over there. Until next time, later. Later.